0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. This week, we have a very special edition of the paper to mark the centenary of the armistice. Our deputy editor, Glyn Pafflin, has delved into the archives to produce an eight-page supplement recounting the course of the First World War, as seen through the pages of the Church Times at the time. At the end of this podcast, he reads the paper's leader from the 15th of November, 1918. Our coverage also includes stories and pictures of how churches have been marking the centenary, William Philpott, Professor of the History of Warfare at King's College London, considers why the armistice did not lead to world peace. We also look at G.A. Studd at Kennedy, a.k.a. Woodbine Willie, in a new light. And Petter Dunstan tells the story of Dorothy Buxton. We also have a fascinating feature by Philip Dawson about how he discovered the stories of the names on the war memorial at Christchurch Southgate in North London, with the help of obituaries written by its vicar during the war, the Reverend Charles Peplow and a wealth of other sources. I spoke to Philip about how the project brought renewed meaning to the Church's remembrance. Subscribe to The Church Times and get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash
1: subscribe. It's a great privilege and honour to uh, be in this edition and uh, to talk to you today. It was a a project uh, remembering the War Memorial, researching the War Memorial at Christchurch. really came about through a realisation that we didn't know much about any of the names behind these uh, 146 men on the War Memorial for A long time I've been fascinated by parish history. I remember growing up um, in Dorset badgering the local vicar uh, because I wanted to write a history book on our local church. And uh, so I think I've always been one of those sorts of people. But uh, in Southgate, when I became church warden, one of the things I loved doing was showing people around the church and showing how the memorials, the beautiful stained glass there, is linked or can be linked to a story about how the parish has changed. I grew to know a lot about the history of the place and I I realised through showing people around people were fascinated by maps of the parish and showing how um, the parish had evolved over the years. But it was uh, through interviewing Crichton, Father Crichton, who became our vicar in 2015. He had, I think, just a sort of a chance uh, comment during the interview about how, as a curate, he'd been involved in a project in um, Leighton Buzzard, where they were remembering the centenary of death of the men um, on, on their World War I memorial. And I realised that we knew nothing about the names of the men on the War Memorial in Christchurch Southgate and uh, really that prompted me to uh, find out more about them and has led to the whole parish really becoming involved over the subsequent few years in an act of remembrance that has um developed and through engaging with this history uh, that you know i'm not i'm not related to any of these men mm. um directly in, in in terms of sort of genealogy but i'm i'm related to them through through my presence in in the parish and we're uh, part of this community of the faithful that is still still alive you know mm. today
0: you, you write in your feature that realizing that the stories of the 146 men listed on your war memorial had fallen out of use it, it prompted an addictive period of research i mean how did you go about that research what what tools did you have
1: Yes, um, it, uh, all freely available online, um, some of which we had to pay for. But uh, what we, we started off by looking at the census to uh, find out where the men lived. We looked at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, has an excellent website. The, the parish archive at the London Metropolitan Archive has a fantastic collection of the uh, parish magazines from, you know, from right. way back. And that proved to be a very valuable resource in terms of obituaries, that the role of honour started listing all the men who were serving. And when it got to sort of six pages, they stopped and just started listing the men who who died. So um, from those records, we were able to piece together and make connections between the census, between the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and the Parish Magazine, and uh, build up a list, really, of of the basic biographical information of the the men listed on the war memorial. And from that basic sort of information, a whole bunch of other things sort of suddenly suddenly flowed. The first thing that um, I did was to plot with a poppy on a 1911 map, OS map of the parish where these men lived, because we'd identified their homes through the census and right. so on. This is the poppy and map. The, the poppy map, yes, yeah, and people really engaged with that it sh- it, at so many levels. It showed not not only the scale of of death but, uh, and the suffering that happened, which we all know about and we all learn about in school, and we'd all seen these 146 men um, and, and the, the, the names on the war memorial. We it wasn't till we presented that list of names graphically or geographically, I guess, that um, somehow that history was brought literally closer to home.
0: And some people could see that one of the the war dead had lived next door to them or on their road or around the corner so it made it seem more real.
1: Absolutely yes um, every street in the parish it was a village at that time um, because this is obviously long before the the, the tube came and, mm-hmm. and the big expansion of the parish happened and uh, yeah people could see that at least in every street of the parish there was a fatality a family had been affected and the map also showed class divide. It showed that a different density of impact in areas which had the bigger houses. There's a, a bit of the parish just north of Broomfield Park, big Edwardian villas that had just been built. These, the homes of the officer classes and uh, around one or two fatalities, deaths per street, in those sorts of areas, to the north of the parish, the terraced housing where uh, the lower, lower-ranking, the sappers, the riflemen, and so on lived, um, up to ten deaths per street in one of one of the streets in Ivy Road. So on many levels, it showed not just the scale of the impact; it brought it home to people literally um, on the doorstep, but also gave something or hinted at uh, as uh, some of the stories behind the lives of these men, what sort of families they might have come from, and from that, we luckily managed to find lots of hard work other people had done on the internet about uh, um, about many of these men. Some, some of the men living in the more wealthy parts of the parish had jobs in the city and many city companies particularly um, sort of financial companies have put together Books about the men who served in in the First World War, and uh, we were able to find out something about the lives mm-hmm. of some of these men from that. The parish magazine, as I mentioned, um, a huge that re- really valuable resource in terms of giving a snapshot of the lives of these men, and uh, we put together an exhibition. Luckily, found lots of um photographs on the mm-hmm. internet, um, from various sources, and put together a a, a series of display boards had to be selective about which stories we could share. We only had a certain amount of space and money to do it. Should um, we talk
0: about one or two of those people who 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 stand out as
1: Yes, absolutely yes. Who, I, I, mean, think, we, I
0: mean we've got some here, haven't we? These um
1: Yeah, so in front of me, I've got a board. One of the boards um, simply displays some information about the youngest man uh, who's listed on the War Memorial in church and the oldest man. The youngest man was a chap called Alan Whale. And interestingly, he's the only man who's buried near to the church. Um, uh, The others are are buried overseas. Alan Whale was 18 when he died in November 1917. He'd already served um, in the Royal Flying Corps in Egypt, Um, But he died in an accident at an airstrip in Norwich and that's why he's buried close to home in the parish uh, in the cemetery opposite the church. And uh, we found his medal card through the um, the RAF Museum, who were very helpful. And uh, we, we don't have a photograph of him, but through posting information online, we've, uh, his uh, grand granddaughter, I think, has been tweeting the church this week saying, oh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you're um, remembering him. And uh, so by putting information, yeah. these exhibition boards online, that's led to a whole other right. sort of level of people yes. becoming engaged outside of our parish community. Yes. The oldest man was, you know, not much older than me, 43, uh, Ernest Whiskin, and uh, he lived in Powers Lane, just on the edge of Broomfield Park. And uh, very interesting, He, before the war, he'd worked as a, a reporter for a paper in Aylesbury before he moved to Southgate. And he came back uh, in 1915, just before he died in May 1915, and gave an interview to the Aylesbury Gazette, I think it was, to uh, talk about his first-hand experience at the Christmas Day truce. And there's a fascinating article wow. we found um, from a website in Hertfordshire um, uh, re- recounting that that interview that he gave. So, uh, you know, men on the War Memorial died in the Somme in Passchendaele. These, these big events that we learn about and we know about. And somehow making a connection to the parish was very powerful. and as well as the poppy map being a local sort of link and and a a house-to-house link, literally bringing it close to home, the other element of it, when we looked at where these men had ended up, from sort of Gaza to the Arctic Circle, you saw the global impact of this. And people who visited the exhibition commented on the fact that somehow they felt closer to the stories that they hear in the news today about conflict around the world, and and somehow th- through having a connection to this appalling loss of life that um, affected every street in this in this parish, um, somehow brought people closer to those suffering mm. around the world today, which are, is fascinating.
0: And you so you had you this Southgate remembers exhibition is running at the moment.
1: Yes, absolutely it's been running every year so we we started it in 1915 um, sorry 2015 and um it's been going uh, every every year since each each November we've displayed this information the information about uh, all the men that we collected is online that people can access on the church website christchurchsouthgate.org and you can go to the history section and through that and through tweeting and facebooking and all the rest of it we've had people getting in touch with us a lady called Roberta Tweedy is a relative of uh, our first scoutmaster, and she got in touch with us. She'd written, I think, a musical piece about his life, right. and uh, he was the first man from the parish to be decorated in battle. And she sent some wonderful pictures to us of, of him, um, which uh, really really uh, brought to life his his role in, in the war, and his role as our first scoutmaster, which, of course, was of great interest to our cubs and scouts today, who came in, uh, I think... Uh, 2016 to uh, remember him and to light candles and so on, and um, the exhibition as a sort of a display of facts over the course of this the World War One centenary has evolved, and as people have taken on this history, and it's become part of their stories. Different people in the parish have uh, explored that in different ways. So uh, Bryony Hadji Daniel, who runs our craft group uh, last year, did this fantastic uh, project with with the Cubs and the local schools similar to the silhouettes that you see around this year. Um, but she was very concerned that most of the records that we have, the photographic records, are from the officer classes, and there are many men listed that don't have a face. And so she engaged with the local schools and the the uniform groups, and they came in, selected the name of one of the men on the war memorial, and drew them on a, on a silhouette. And they were placed around the church um, during Remembrance Week and Remembrance Sunday. Very, very powerful, very similar way to um, the There But Not There um, Mm. um, um, exhibition is doing at the moment this year. This year, there's been a whole week of of Remembrance uh, activities in Southgate, and uh, Kate Carroll, one of uh, our parishioners, and her family have put together this sequence of music and readings based on the words of the men who were fighting at the front. They wrote letters back for the parish magazine about the conditions there, the vicar's letter at the start of the war, the obituaries. She's managed to piece that together into this sequence of voices from the past. Bryony again this year has made a fantastic uh, uh, display. We've got wonderful windows in Southgate, wonderful Burn mm-hmm. jones windows. And uh, on the temperance window, um, she's put where the the virtue, this beautiful image of temperance pouring water out of a out of a jug she's uh, turned uh, that window into this cascade of uh, knitted poppies which the whole craft group have been Mm. making and it sort of flows out of the 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 water of life from temperance and these poppies flow down over the pews into the aisle and it's really really I'm, I'm really been so impressed with the way that different members of the church community in the parish have taken on what all I did really was a basic bit of research and it's sort of sparked the imagination of so many people. Been invited to talk to local residence groups, to the Civic Trust, the president of Civic Voice came to um, hear about what we'd done it, and it's inspired people to find out about the war memorials in their church or in their mm. park. So many levels, so many different stories which um, which uh, ring out. We've uh, tried to put in the, the exhibition boards stories about people who didn't want to fight, men who appealed against conscription and the reasons why. And uh, there are some wonderful, um, moving, handwritten letters that you can access at the National Archives about the men who appealed against Uh, being called up. And uh, there's a particular story we used in the exhibition from a guy called uh, George Fletcher, who was the brother of John, who's listed on our war memorial. And the reason that George was appealing against conscription is because he was, at the age of 16, 17 or whatever, the only breadwinner for the house and uh, you can look at and see his handwritten uh, reasons as detailing in um, minute detail the, the, the income and the outgoings of the house to, to the tribunal and uh, you can also see the rather official sort of typewritten reply saying I'm very sorry but uh, you know your family will be provided for somehow you're going to have to have to serve. The choir, particularly, um, were very moved by the stories of the choristers who who died, and there were two uh, young men, Ernest Wollstonecraft and Charlie Dermer, who, who were choristers from a very young age, became senior choristers, joined up together, fought together, and died together. And uh, the obituary that Charles Peplow, the vicar of the time, wrote um, was read out on their centenary of death at Evensong. And, complete silence in the church you know i mean hearing hearing those words and in the same way that these there but not there silhouettes have um you know prompted lots of conversations hearing about people who were doing the same jobs as you in church their their choristers their bell ringers their servers and these people gave their lives for us, they, so that we might be saved, and there's such an obvious uh, theological um, <laughs> uh, link there. But actually, bringing it home through stories close to home, I think really, really makes you appreciate that. In a, uh, it gives an entirely different perspective on, on, on this this event, this world war. The, the letters from, um, from the front, the the obituaries that uh, that Charles Peploe was writing. Um, really moving and particularly I think I mentioned in the article one which is about uh, another chorister William Antony and you can tell from the way that the vicar was writing that this wasn't a boy a man a young man who was that predisposed to be a fighter and he, he didn't willingly go this this these obituaries aren't hero worship they're stories of faithful people who in circumstances when all they could really do was follow orders, lived out their faith, they were obedient, they served with love for one another, and um, they died in, in doing so. They made the ultimate sacrifice. I think this, this, whole, this whole period when we've been remembering those men on our war memorial has gone from a list of names that we knew nothing about To be stories that are somehow embedded in our own lives and this year we've had alongside the exhibition people have brought in family memorabilia nothing not directly connected with the names of the men on the war memorial in Southgate but sharing their own stories and their own family stories and lots of people I've spoken to said that most of the time these stories weren't talked about and somehow through sharing the stories of the men on the war memorial it's become easier for them to share these this memorabilia this family history mm. one thing i would like to say is that this the work that we did was about the 146 men on our war memorial of which there are dozens hundreds all around the country and researching this history has been important for the for the reasons that we've talked about just the fact that you know the, the centenary of the armistice is now with us doesn't mean that that history should stop being research and stop being of interest Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really important so you know we 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 started this in 2015 um, and uh, it's taken a long time and it's developed but I, I would encourage people to research, whatever, if you don't have a war memorial, there's other bits of the church that have a link to your parish and your place and the community in which you serve. And Southgate, the parish has changed so much. It's now a a, a very diverse population, people from all over the world. Um, And uh, everyone who's visited and and interacted with this research and and the the things that have flown from it have somehow managed to draw something um, uh, that's relevant to their lives. And in so doing, connected them to the, to the parish. And I, I'm a great believer in the closer we come to each other, the closer we come to God. And I think that's, that's been a really special outcome from, from this piece of work.
2: On Monday morning, just before dawn, our troops entered Mons, the town which the old contemptibles held at the beginning of the war, against overwhelming odds, until they were obliged to withdraw. It was therefore dramatically fitting that victory should have been finally achieved on the scene of a former reverse. For with an hour or two of the retaking of Mons, the German delegates signed the armistice, and before midday the last shot was fired. Then all the world knew that the fighting was over, and the civilised part of it rejoiced. Thrones were tumbling down, emperors and princes were in flight, and republics were springing up where military autocracies had been. But in the first enthusiasm of Monday, these were hardly in our thoughts. The nightmare of war having vanished in the light of that morning, our minds were filled with love and gratitude to those who on and under the sea, in the air and on land, had dared all that England should be free from an invader's power. The memory of those who had paid the last sacrifice filled every heart, and for many their joy in the glorious news was mingled with the sorrow of bereavement, which was all the more poignant in that hour of triumph. But for all of us it was a day to be remembered while life lasts, and a day greater than any that has been recorded in the annals of our country. We are still some distance from the goal of a just and lasting peace, and it is to be feared that there will be obstacles in the path. Nevertheless, we shall press forward to that goal in the hope that by the grace of God, the world shall no more be devastated by the cruelties of war, and shall be made safe for the growth of religion and civilization. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. So the King, his Parliament, and his faithful subjects interpreted the working out of the great drama, which ended on Monday with the signing of the Armistice, and so interpreting it with one accord they fell to prayer and thanksgiving. His Majesty, in his addresses to the Navy, the Army and the Air Force, struck the note of humble gratitude to Almighty God for this great deliverance. The Lords and Commons suspended their sittings on Monday as soon as they heard read the terms of the Armistice and repaired to St Margaret's Church, there to give God the glory. The Lord Mayor and the Corporation of London went, as their forefathers had always gone in times of national sorrow or rejoicing, to St Paul's. On Tuesday again there was a great offering of thanks, the king and queen with the two primates and the great officers of state, uniting with a vast crowd of citizens in a solemn act of worship. And as it was at St. Margaret's and the cathedral, so it has been in every city and well nigh every village in the land. With one consent, as it were, the people have bent the knee, confessing that this is indeed the Lord's doing." There is also another aspect in which these common acts of worship can be viewed. They give us the feeling that we are one family, united, in whatever corner of the globe its members may be, under the head of our race, His Majesty King George V. Subjects of the British Empire, in India, Australasia, Canada or wherever they may be, recognize in the crown of England the link that binds us all together. Men of every shade, of political opinion, of many different religions, of diverse races, see in the crown the symbol of that unity, the sense of which impelled the gallant citizen-soldiers of the overseas dominions to risk their lives on the battlefields of Europe. It is marvellous in our eyes. The terms imposed on Germany are undoubtedly stiff and it is not surprising to find the German Foreign Secretary appealing to the kind-hearted President of the United States to use his influence in order to mitigate these fearful conditions which, Dr Solf admits, we had to accept. They had to be made severe. A nation that cannot keep its word must be tightly held to the fulfilment of imposed conditions. An army that pollutes or poisons wells must, when beaten, be rendered impotent to repeat such deeds of foulness. It is useless to appeal to a charity that is nothing more nor less than soft-hearted and soft-headed sentimentality. That is not at all in accord with the present temper of the Allies.' As we remarked in a recent Leader, to exact justice is not to wreak vengeance in a spirit of hate. And we are glad to find Cardinal Bourne so entirely in agreement with ourselves in this matter. Last Sunday's Observer contained an interesting interview, in which his eminence argued that avenging justice is an integral part of charity, the charity which in the hour of victory we owe to our enemies. This truth was enforced two years ago by another cardinal, the great Archbishop of Malines. Cardinal Mercier's words were, There is no Christian justice without charity, and no charity without justice. And as avenging justice is a part of the virtue of charity, there is no charity without avenging justice. To desire to close our eyes to injustice under the pretext of heroism in charity and to allow the enemy to commit crimes with impunity because he is the enemy is to fail to recognize the sovereign and necessary sway of charity in the organization of the moral, individual and social life of Christianized humanity. While however the allies are determined to exact justice they are not forgetful of the tender side of charity The precept, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, still stands, and starving Germany, starving though she be through her mad effort to starve us, is to be supplied with food during the armistice. We do not know if this lesson in magnanimity will be lost on the German people, but so far as the Allies are concerned, that is no matter. The law of charity imposes this duty on us.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.